Well, I want to say a special welcome back to Pastor Bill Mead and Jeannie, too. It's just so great to have you home. I can't tell you what a great ministry Pastor Bill and Jeannie have in our community. Uh, They have such a heart for the needs. And and during the time that we're going through with all the financial situations, again and again while you're away, I thought, where's Bill? Where's Bill? I'm just glad you're right here. So it's great to have you here. I also just wanted to say a word, John, about this couple that popped up so quickly. Uh, This is Greg and Ann Albright. Two very, very close friends. When I went to my first church as a senior pastor up on the Central Coast, uh, they came early and God gave us this wonderful friendship and this name, Albright, Waybright, Greg Albright, Greg Waybright, and uh, just so so great to have you here. I just have to preach better now because you'll hold me accountable. We are coming to an interesting story as we're looking at these stories Jesus told as he was heading toward Jerusalem. Again and again, he he would say, I've come to die. And then he would tell stories to help us to understand the meaning of his coming and the meaning of that death. And this is one of the most profound. But I'm not sure that everybody sees it. And I'm praying that we'll be able to see it in a new way. It speaks to our deepest human need. In fact, this week when I was reading this story again and thinking about how on earth do I talk about this Pharisee and tax collector parable, the story that came to my mind was uh, an advertisement that I heard when I was studying in Cambridge, England. It was back in the uh, 80s. But it was of a product that came out of the U.S. And so I remember well, I wrote down the, um, as best as I could, the, uh, the way the ad went, the British form of it. Uh, Hounded by nagging guilt, get rid of it the modern way, the same way you eliminate underarm wetness, bad breath, or limp curls. Spray it away with guilt away. Now, this was the brainchild of two young Seattle businessmen, Mike Corning and Craig Bergsma, who had tried to recapture some of their college years and had gone out on a weekend sailing, thinking they were going to have a great time and, and really love life. But when they came home, they felt awful. Uh, They'd been drinking too much. They hadn't gotten any sleep. They had a hangover. And they weren't happy because their wives weren't happy with some of the things that they had done. And they said, life isn't supposed to be like this. We've been looking forward to this. It's supposed to be good. Why do we feel like this? So they decided they had to get rid of this feeling. And that's why they came up with this product. I think it was just rose water. And they put it in a little bottle with a spray. and, And they called it Guilt Away. Guilt away. And you know, within two years, this became a multi-million dollar, multinational product throughout especially the Western world. Now, I think guilt away's intention, what it's supposed to do, as well as its uh, success, says a whole lot about us as a Western world, don't you think? That in spite of all of the years of psychological sophistication, of trying to make us have more self-esteem and feel better about ourselves, and in spite of ongoing attempts to redefine morality um, in in ways going all the way back to the Hugh Hefner years, that what people used to think was wrong, that's not really wrong. In spite of continuing to try to do that, we human beings still have these times where we say, there is something wrong. There's something wrong with me. Why is it? 
that I say things that I, I didn't want to say and I do the very things that I, that I didn't want to do. What, what's wrong with me? I was reading Don Miller's, Don, the author's book, uh, Blue Like Jazz. He came to one section where he learned this about himself as a very young boy. He uh, did the very things he didn't want to do. And I'll tell you, I could resonate with this. I remember this happening to me as a boy. I, I put a part of his book up here so you can see it. After he had done this, he said, I knew there was something wrong with me. And I wasn't the only one. I knew it was everybody. It was like a bacteria. Perfectionist that I am. It really is bacterium. You, you, English, you knew that. Anyway. Okay. Bacteria. Or a cancer. Or a trance. It wasn't on the skin. It was on the soul. It showed itself in loneliness and lust and anger and jealousy and depression. It was as if we were cracked. Couldn't love right couldn't feel good things for long without screwing it all up. Uh, in the Western world, we have this sense of guilt. We look at ourselves and we say, there's some standard that I've missed. Now, in Jesus' world, this sense of wrongness usually came out in a bit of a different way. Jesus came from a much more extended family kind of a world where communities were really tight. And so what, what happened there was that they longed to measure up to the standards that their families, especially the, the father, the patriarch of the family, held for them. And, uh, and then the community, too, often the religious and political leaders. And especially for Jesus' people, they, they wanted the approval of Jehovah God. And still, you, some of the people, who, you would have some people rebel against these constraints. This is what my family expects of me. I work so hard and I'm not going to do it. But so many tried to be the good children and worked so hard to try to, to show that they were, should be approved. Well, that's the kind of world that they were in. Both of these senses, whether in the Western world of, of feeling guilty about missing a mark that Don Miller talked about, or the, the sense in the more extended family world of, of not quite living in a way that gains full approval, of those around us so that we're ashamed when, when we miss the mark. Both of those things go very deep inside of us. Do you, do you see that? Am, am I explaining this clearly? They go very deep inside of us so that we can even show up in, in church on a, on a Sunday morning and just know that there are some things that are not right. If you can see that, you're, you're going to understand why Jesus took time when he had so little time left. He took time on his way to the cross to tell a story, to tell about why he has come. Uh, to, to, to bring us the thing that we are missing, the shalom of God. That's the word that they had. Uh, this sense of well-being, that things are right, that we're at peace with one another and with God. Remember Jesus says, this is why I've come, to bring you peace. My peace. It's not what the world can give you. My peace I have come to give you and I have to die so that you can have this peace. It's what Jesus gets at when he says that he has come to give us eternal life which is more than just life that goes on and on and on. Because you know that if we just had life that goes on and on and on and on and we still feel guilt and shame, that would not be a heavenly experience. Now, to be able to see how this story speaks to that, I want to show you just the verses that come on the beginning and at the ending. In verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness... And so look down on everybody else, Jesus told a parable. 
And then at the end, Jesus said, after telling about the tax collector and the Pharisee, I tell you that it was the tax collector rather than the Pharisee who went home, in this phrase, justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, I've been thinking I'm going to have a hard time communicating the meaning of this message today because I tell you, in in our world, when, when people read this parable and they see this Pharisee trying to establish his own moral righteousness to God, people always say, people don't do that anymore. That just shows you the irrelevance of these stories. More establishing moral righteousness? What on earth does that mean? Well, let me tell you, it means something very significant to each one of us, if I can but explain it. And these two words that you had in verse 9, confident of their own righteousness. Do you see that one? So that that made them look down on others. And then at the end, one went home justified before God. It's really the same word, even though, even though we see it so differently in, uh, in English. Uh, it really has to do with uh, two things. The, the picture of that right, righteousness, or being justified, was sometimes a courtroom term. So that when you go into the courtroom and you have the standard of law that is here, and, and then you, you're accused of something, and sometimes you know you, what you're accused of you've done. The standard of the law is 55 miles an hour. And Lake Avenue Church, you have gone 57 miles. All right. All right. 57 miles an hour. No matter what happens, you've broken that standard and you are declared either innocent, if you are, or guilty. And so this is the way that some were trying to establish that I am innocent before God. There's nothing wrong with me. And, and the other way that was used was in the family, a family term. So that where you would have a family that's very close-knit and your family has very high expectations of you, justified meant to be approved by. And it's that deep, deep longing to be approved by. And that when you don't have the approval of those who mean a lot to you, you just feel so ashamed. What Jesus is talking about in this parable is what psychologists in our day usually address as a lack of self-esteem. You know, that sense inside that there's just something that's not quite right. It's what uh, uh, Bergsma and, and, uh, and Corning were trying to get it with guilt away. It comes out that way. And it's, and it's what in, in, in Jesus' world came out much more as just feeling so, so ashamed. I, I began to understand that second part about not feeling approved by people. Uh, when I lived in Japan back so many years ago, I was living with a family there, uh, the Osawa family. I really came to love them. They were exactly the same age of my parents. And we would just, in the evening, sit and talk about life. Uh, Mr. Osawa was the head of the Board of Education uh, in Kofushi, where, uh, where I was living. And one day I had read in the English language paper in Japan uh, this story about Japanese businessmen who had lost their jobs. But in spite of the fact they were unemployed, every day they would dress up in their very best suits, as they always did, They would walk out at the same time of day into their uh, clean, finely waxed cars and they would drive as if they're going to work. What happened was that the Japanese government, finding out about this, had found even some parks where these well-dressed but unemployed Japanese businessmen could go for a while so that they wouldn't disgrace the whole community and the whole world showing what's going on with it being there. 
uh, what happened is that people remained unemployed for a long period of time. The suicide rate was unbelievably high among these men. I remember asking Mr. Osaro, why did that happen? And he said to me something like this, Greg, you're an American, so you wouldn't really understand this. But what's happening is they are ashamed. They're ashamed. They believe that their families are disgraced by their failure. And he said, listen, Greg, I know it sounds bad to you, but it's not altogether bad. Because if you don't care what anybody else thinks about you, you're liable to do anything. And I remember saying back to him, I think I understand this better than you could ever imagine. And I told him the story of when um, I was a junior higher going into the seventh grade. Um, we had moved from one community to another, so I had to go to a different school. And, and some of you remember junior high years, those are the hard years to break in. You know, you, you feel so uncertain of yourself anyway. And so, you're, so I was trying to be successful in every way. And so we came, and I was a good student. I worked hard as a student. So we had this standardized test that all 200-plus 7th graders uh, were taking there in the school. And I took it, and I ended up making the second-highest grade. I felt pretty good about it. I remember coming back home and feeling proud. I said, Mom, I made the second-highest grade of over 200 kids in the class. And she said, Why didn't you make the highest grade? I was talking to my college roommate who was from China. I've told you about him, who was from China, about this when I made my first B at Wheaton College, and I was so ashamed to have my family get my grades with a B. And I remember him saying to me, Oh, Greg, you have an Asian mother. That's what he, <laughs> that's what he said to me. So I think some of you can understand that. Do you see the problem that Jesus is addressing? In some cultures, it comes out as guilt. In others, it comes out of shame. It, it's this place where we just feel like I'm not quite all that I should be. It's why I started, one of the reasons I started our sermons this year in the book of Genesis. Because in the book of Genesis, we see the problem set in front of us. God made people to live well. And in living well, he, he set up one standard. Don't eat of this one tree. And so the man and woman ate of it. And because of that, they hid they hid partially out of guilt because they'd broken God's one law. But at the same time, they hid out of shame because they had been meant to walk and talk and be approved by God. In fact, repeatedly it tells us they were naked but not ashamed. They were not ashamed. And then when they had missed God's standard, they were ashamed of being in the presence of God. Do you see it? Well, if I've made this clear, then you can understand why this story is so important. This problem of our lives being right, stains being removed, approval by God being heard. So Jesus, out of love for us, turns and he says, listen, I want to take this up and tell you a story about it. And what we have is one problem, that is being right in our lives before God with two solutions, one that works and one that doesn't. Ready to look at it? Solution one, working hard on the outside so that our inside will feel better. It's the way the Pharisee tried to go about it. It's what some theologians have said, working from the outside in. It's a religion that says, do all these things, check, 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 and then, then you'll be able to know the acceptance and approval of God. Look at the Pharisee in verse 11. The Pharisee prayed about himself. 
God, I thank you that I'm not like the others. Robbers, evildoers, or adulterers. And then very specifically, I am thankful I'm not like that tax collector. I'll tell you, when you read that on the surface, it looks like this man had no problem with guilt and shame, right? But I read it differently. I see him as, well, like in the story of the prodigal son, as the good son who had worked so hard to do what is right and was so different from the other son. I see him as the one who had worked so hard his whole life, says this is what my family and this is what my church expects of me. Check, check, check. I, I, I want to do this. And surely, surely, uh, in, especially in comparison to some of these others, I should be the one who is accepted by God, approved by God. I must be okay. How did he go about it? It's just classic. First, first he sought God's approval by comparing himself with others. Thank you, God, he said, that I'm not like these evil people in this world, specifically picking out a couple of really rotten things, adultery and and robbery and evil doing of any kind. And then very specifically, I'm not like that tax collector who's over there who would have probably been way up. I see we have a few up there, way up in the balcony, hiding away from the rest of us. See, this is this attempt to feel good about ourselves by setting up a list of do's and don'ts, a checklist of specific things being able to check them and then looking at others and saying, well, I I do those better than others. Sometimes we'll pick out for our checklist um, the things that we think, I've never done that one. Do you remember my series in the Ten Commandments where at the end of the day we saw that we'd broken them all? But we we at least say, I haven't broken them as extremely as uh, other people have done it. And so in comparison ourselves with others, um, we, we feel like we must be okay. You see, he picks out some things that are wrong. Robbery and being unfaithful in our, in our promises, those are wrong. So in, in case uh, you wonder if your pastor thinks they're wrong, they are. That's not how God meant for us to live. But he picked those things out and said, okay, I know some others who do things like this, like that tax collector over there. I haven't done them, so I must be okay. Now, now I ask us, do we have a tendency to do the same thing? I, I'm quite sure that we do. Um, I don't get drunk as much as those other guys at work do. I, um, I show up at church and they're, they're not here. I don't do drugs. I, I don't steal or, or cheat on my income taxes. So check, 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 check. And yet, it seemed like something was missing. It seemed like something was missing. I, I read this. He, he never prayed about anything internal. He only prayed about these external things. He, he didn't say, Father, help me to love that adulterer and robber and evildoer the way that I've seen Jesus loving them. He didn't say, help me to be as patient with them as Jesus, you have been with them and, and with me. And so it's so similar to other stories that we see Jesus telling. The story of the Good Samaritan, for example. Do you remember it was a lawyer Uh, talking about biblical law, a lawyer who came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to have eternal life? He was trying to stump Jesus. But the fact is, I think he knew that he was missing something. And Jesus said, you're the lawyer. How do you read it? And he read it right. Love God, the first part of the Ten Commandments. Love people, the second part of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, right, do it and you'll live. But he knew something was missing. So to try to justify himself, he tries to stump Jesus again. And Jesus essentially tells him a story, making him look on the inside. And deal with his lovelessness 
uh, toward people different from himself. Or, or in the sermon Pastor Albert preached just a few weeks ago, the prodigal son. You have the one son who was really a rotter. He rejected his family's values. He did all sorts of things that were absolutely wrong. He felt like he should never come home. But there was this one good son who has done everything his father asked him to do. And he was the one who gets the rejection from the story of Jesus. And the reason was that he was looking inside himself at his own attempts to self-promote his self-righteousness, his ingratitude for his father. And I feel like as we look at this, we can see so much of ourselves. In fact, if you look at the way he prayed, it, it really is telling. I thank God that. Now, I'll tell you, that's a red flag right there. If you find yourself praying that way, you're, you're going to be in trouble. Because when you write a thank you note, don't you always start it, I thank God for, or I thank you for. And then you write about what the other person has done, right? Isn't that a good thank you letter? This man says, I thank God that, and then you never hear a thing about God. It's all about him. I'm just thankful I'm not like those rotters over there who would never know your approval, God, so you must approve me. And I'll tell you, when we begin comparing ourselves with others, rather than simply looking to God himself, it is lethal. It is lethal. And the shocker is that this man who had worked so hard to know God's approval does not find it. Now, the second way he tried to approve himself by his own external actions is by compensation. Look at verse 12. So interesting. Verse 12. He adds something. He throws it in. He had talked about divine mandates, God's commands earlier. Don't rob. Uh, be faithful in your marriage vows. But now he slips in here some other things. Oh, and notice this, I fast twice a week. Now, did you know the law of Moses only required one fast per year? Now, other fasts were introduced. So out of love for God, you may want to set aside some food for a while just to be with God. And so a lot of fasting had happened. But this man wants to know, God, if you expect me to fast once a year, I want to tell you what I do. He's adding something on to the divine commands. It's a personal preference. He didn't have to do it, but I fast twice a week, over a hundred times a year. And I'm sure he also said, knowing what the Pharisees did, and look at how I tithe. Because they not only tithe of their uh, financial income, they would take out their spice rack, their spices, and they would sort out those spices and give 10% of that to God. Do you see what he's doing? He's taking something that's just a personal preference, something that you might do out of a love for God. And he's made it a criterion, a standard for being accepted by God. It's kind of like any of you have been students. You want to do well. And you think you've worked hard enough to make the A. But you wonder, did I really? And so what do you do? I'm going to do some extra credit. What can I do to make up for any place I've fallen short? I've read five extra chapters. I've written three extra papers. I've been at every lab that we've had. Surely I'll get the A. And that's what he is doing in this place. And once again, I just ask, do any of us struggle with that? And I'll tell you, sometimes we add things that are good things to do out of love for God and we turn them into things that establish our own moral superiority to other people. For example, here we are in church. I'm so thankful that you're here. You may say, yeah, I go to church. 
Uh, these other people, I only see them here once a week. I go to church. Hebrews tells us to get there. But you know how often I go to church? I, I've thought of Danielle and Zach up in the sound booth. They sometimes have to hear me f- preach four times in 24 hours. They could say, oh, man, do I? I go to church all those times, and I go, I'm in a, a Sunday school class, and I'm in two Bible studies, and I mentor the young people in this community and our STARS program, and, and, and surely I must be approved by God. Or even we can just come into church. Yes, I go to church, but did you see me singing? When I was singing, I was raising my hands. I really love God. And look, I had these people sitting beside me. They seem like they're dead. They must not really have a heart for God. And you know what they're thinking? They, they, we were establishing that as a, a, a spiritual uh, uh, superiority sort of a, 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 a comment that we're making. But the person sitting next to you is saying, yes, but I've watched you. You raised your hand, but when the preacher is preaching, you don't take notes and I take notes. <clears throat> so I listen much more carefully. I, I must be, Do you see how sinister... This sort of thing is. It's this matter of establishing, exalting ourselves, working hard, hoping surely I will be approved. And I'll tell you, these methods of comparison and compensation, I think probably completely removed any ability to just rest upon the grace of God. He was still just hoping that this God the Father would approve and and accept him. And the amazing thing in the story is he does not find that approval from God. And so in our Lenten journey, I think I, I want, I'm praying that the Spirit of God will do a real work in our heart. I would like us to take this out and ask the Lord, am I seeking your approval through external things? That if I do this, surely God has to approve me. Surely he has to bless me. Surely he has to give me a new job surely he has to take care of my children. Am I seeking God's approval through external things? Either through comparing myself to others. I'm not as bad as that Democrat or that Republican. I'm, I'm not as Or through compensating. Through things that might be wonderful ways of responding to the love of God. But establishing them as ways of being spiritually superior to others. We need to go to this second solution because here we begin to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's not going to happen by us working so hard that we meet God's standard or that we work so hard that we receive God's approval. Then what, what does Jesus say here? And the second solution is this, receiving God's gift for the inside of our being so that God can do his work from the inside to the out. I, I didn't know quite how to put this. I hope this makes sense to you that we receive God's gift of grace and mercy and forgiveness that we don't deserve so that gratitude will be there and God will begin to to do His work from the inside to the out. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Did you notice we meet a bit of a different kind of a person here? But this tax collector is a little different from the, uh, from the Pharisee. And sh- 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 I'll show you how it comes out. You notice when he walked into the house of God, he stood at a distance. He knew that in that community, he was the kind of person that no polite company would ever want him to be there. 
And surely the father, the God of that polite company would not want him to be there. So he didn't even feel like he should be able to go into the church building. Um, and, and there's a sense in which he was right. I'll just tell you that. You know, tax collectors did awful things. Tax collectors did awful things. Uh, sometimes we make the Pharisees such the rotter and the, and, the, uh, and the tax collector such a good guy that we fail to see what an awful life this was. I've tried to think of a parallel to it in our world. I can't think of anything in the 21st century, but it, it would be like having been a Nazi collaborator back in World War II. Because what he did was he kept his own people under an oppressive government. They were there. And so he was an instrument to keep them there. And not only that, he became rich by keeping his own people under yoke. What a rotten person that he was. And they did so many things. So if he felt like, I don't deserve to be in the presence of a holy God, he is right. And it comes out by him standing at a distance. He wouldn't even look up at God because God knew him. He was so much like that, that wayward prodigal son who when he came home, he said, I can't even really go into the presence of my father. Maybe he'll let me be a slave because I've done wrong. That's what we see here in this tax collector. He beat his breast, a sign of remorse in the, uh, in the Orient. And notice his prayer. God, be merciful to me. And really what he prayed was the sinner. The sinner. I know our English versions only have an A center, but there's a definite article there. He is the center. In other words, he wasn't comparing himself to other people in church. He didn't say, yeah, I walked into your church, Pastor, and I saw some of those people. You don't know what they are like. And pretty much I say, I think I do know. Maybe not everything they do, but I know what we are like. But that's not how you do He didn't look and say, they're worse than I am. Or You know all the things that that Pharisee does? No, no, no. He looked at himself and he says, Father, you know me. And I'm the sinner who's been walking away from you. So I have nothing to claim on my own. All that I can ask for is your mercy. I don't deserve it. I throw myself upon your character. Will you receive me? And he is received. Now let me say one word about a big issue in our culture and in our society that I must address here. And that is, you know, there's a difference between what I sometimes call guilt feelings and guilt fact. Or you might call it false guilt versus real guilt. Uh, in the guilt feelings, the, the false guilt, sometimes we feel shame or we feel guilt for something that we have long since dealt with. But we can't undo what we did. We don't have the ability to do that. And God knows that. And so we've gone to, to ask forgiveness and gone to seek reconciliation. We brought it to God. Uh, we've made that thing right. And yet still somehow inside we feel guilty. Do any of you? Something that I've wrestled with. I remember one time it was especially hard, hard for me uh, when my uh, second child died. Um, I, th- I was a pastor already. And, and I, th- I had all these thoughts. Father... Did I not pray right? Uh, did I not have enough faith? And especially I thought, did I, did I mistreat my wife, Chris? Because she was like seven months pregnant when we made that long car trip from Chicago uh, to the central coast of California. Uh, since that time, you know, I think God has really done a work in my heart to say, God, I, uh, Greg, I'm sovereign. <laughs> 
So you don't carry that. You don't carry that. I, I, I bring beauty out of ashes. So, so you don't carry that. So I think he's done a great work. But I do understand that when sometimes we have something in our lives that we no longer can do anything about, that we just have to, to bask in the fact that God can, can rework anything that we have messed up. But there is on the other side, that's false guilt. We can't do anything about that. But the Bible talks about something else. It's real guilt where we know how we're supposed to live. And we do otherwise. And we do it over and over again. That's what this man is dealing with. God, be merciful to me. I'm the sinner. I know your standards. And I have intentionally broken them for my own benefit. And I'll tell you, when there is real guilt, when we have done what is wrong, uh, then that guilt needs to be paid for. You know, in a moral world, you can't live in a moral country if crime is just allowed to go on and, 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 and you say, oh, I, I didn't mean to do it. Okay, no, no penalty. No, crime must be paid for or you're not going to have a moral world. And God has promised that he's going to have a moral universe where the guilt that is real because of our real sin has to be paid for. And the wages of sin is death. It's separation from God. So where is there any hope? And that's why Jesus tells this story on the way to the cross. Because the hope is not in me working hard so that now I can become perfect because I'm not. It is me owning up to the fact that I can't be there and I've fallen short. Father, have mercy upon me. And the word that he hears is it's this man rather than the other who hears that beautiful, beautiful word, justified. Uh, made right, sin's gone, approved by God Himself. You are accepted in the family. He, he knew where He'd gone wrong. He comes to God and He hears God who is both the moral judge of the universe, say, innocent, and God the Father of the family, saying, Welcome home, my child. You are accepted in my family. Remember I told you that this word justified or made right does not come out of the world of psychology. It comes out of the world of the courtroom and the family. And in the courtroom where we have done wrong, we need to be declared innocent. We need to pay the penalty that leads to that. And where we are in the family and we've not met our family standards, we wonder if we will ever be approved. And Jesus is saying here, on the basis of what I do, the reason why I'm going to go into Jerusalem and knowingly hang on that cross is because I love you and I want to take away that guilt and that shame that is so deep within you so that you can be at peace and have shalom and eternal life. Again, I want you to remember that both of these men had a problem. There was something wrong about their lives. And both of them sought to find a solution. But the reality is only the one who acknowledged honestly before God that he couldn't do it on his own was able to find that beautiful, beautiful justification and the other one missed it. And I don't want us to miss why he missed it. And it's seen there in verse 14. Look at it again. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home approved by God, accepted by God, right with God, because... All who try to exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
This is why it's so important when we come into church to do that deep search within ourselves and to become very conscious of those areas that we know are not right before God and to bring them to Him and say, Father, it's only by Your mercy and grace that I have any hope. Why is that important? Because as Jesus declared, God does not justify the proud. Or maybe I should flip it around and say, as long as we have this pride and think I can do it on my own, we will never really come and ask for the grace of God. But this is so hard to get through our thick skulls. Because especially if you grew up in a sort of a family like mine, you know, I had a brother who was the wayward brother. He always did everything wrong, and I was always the good son. And so I always would look at that and just think, wait a minute, I have all these A's. He doesn't even go to school. Wait, wait a minute. I, I, I'm better. And so I come and I read these stories and, and it, it takes a lot to get through this thick skull of mine that it's only by the grace of God. This is why when you read these stories of Jesus, one after another has these bad guys and good guy stories. And it's always the good guy, like me, who's always condemned. And it's always the bad guy who gets approved. Why? It's because this is so lethal when we start to think I'm better than he or she is because I haven't done this group of things. When I fail to see there but by the grace of God go I. When I fail to realize that anything that I am is only because of the mercy and grace of God. It's just so hard to see that. But when I finally do, I find some good news. You know I need that good news. If I can't even live up to my mother's standards, there's no way I'm going to live up to my, my heavenly father's. You know that. So where is there hope for us? And Jesus said, the hope is that I have come to deal with your guilt and deal with your shame. What did the tax man do? Uh, he admitted his need. He owned up to it. The other one just couldn't do that. He just couldn't say, oh, I'm as bad. Oh, he had to say, no, I'm not as bad as they are. He just couldn't own it. And his ability to own what was inside made him willing to come in remorse and true repentance and ask for the mercy of God and then to be able to hear the Heavenly Father say, that sin I will cast as far as east is from the west. Is this good news? Welcome to the family. You are approved on the basis of my son. And so the last question I want you to wrestle with, this is both for those who who may never have experienced the forgiveness and shalom, the peace of God, as well as for those of us who have, but keep falling back into this old trap of self-righteousness. Have I truly discovered God's approval? Discovered it through repentance of my sins and faith in the Lord Jesus. I want us to have just a moment of prayer, but but to direct that prayer, I want to put this last thought up here that Jesus gave. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. We try to go it on our own, be good enough to be approved by God. 
will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. Because of Jesus and to his glory. Amen. Amen.